I want to start off by sharing with you today that my main illustration that I'm going to be using for my sermon is about my drinking alcohol uh, before coming to Christ and God setting me free from that. Now, people on both sides of the issue, which we have in this church, people on both sides of the issue, are going to be tempted to do one of two things with my story that I'm sharing. One is that you're going to be tempted to use my story, my personal testimony, as a proof text to prove what you believe about drinking. Or you're going to be tempted to shut down and block me out because the, sermon's about, because the sermon illustration is about drinking. I want to encourage you to do neither. Because if you do either one of those, you are going to miss the point of the illustration completely. Okay? There is no secret as a pastor that I teach you guys that I believe that a Christian should never drink. It is not a wise practice. It is not whether or not it is sin or not. It is whether it is wisdom or not. So I am not trying to teach that view this morning. I am specifically sharing my personal testimony about something and that, this illustration about something else. So don't block this out about the drinking, okay? Listen to the illustration. Amen? Amen. All right. I want to pray now before we get started. That way, I usually share a little bit of the illustration, but I want to start it a little different today. I want to pray now so that you don't miss anything. So let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and I ask that this illustration um, would be able to be received by people on both sides of the issue. Lord, um, while I, while I personally believe that it's something that we should avoid as Christians, that's not the crux of the matter today. What we're talking about today is something completely different and using my drinking as an illustration in that. And I pray that that illustration would not interfere with what is being communicated, but instead would, enhan- would enhance it. Father, use it for your glory and for your honor. Lord, may your spirit preside over this place and may you speak into us the truth that we need to hear today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen. So for those of you who have heard my story, some of this will be familiar. For others who haven't heard my story, um, I'm going to share a little bit of that with you today. And sometimes my sharing my story, um, I know agitates people. Because they don't want to hear about it. But here's the reality. When you do expository verse-by-verse preaching, most of the illustrations come out of your own life. I'm not preaching topical sermons where I could just jump on the internet and look up illustrations or go to my il- illustrations for Bible sermons, out of books and stuff and find illustrations. I'm preaching verse-by-verse through a book. And so the easiest place to find illustrations is my own life. It's not that I want to glorify my life. Especially my past sin life. But it's where the illustrations come from. It's the things that I understand. I am the world's leading expert on my own testimony. Right? So I don't have to wonder whether or not it's true. I know it's true because it's my story. Amen? So that's why I use my story so much. And you will find most expositors who preach through a book verse by verse, most of them, not all of them, primarily use illustrations out of their own life for the very same reasons. All right? So after I got saved, and for those of you who don't know, I've only been a Christian uh, now since 2002. Since 2002. 
So I am in, in uh, April of 2015, I will have been a Christian for 13 years. I've been a pastor, I've been a Christian almost 13 years, I've been a pastor in September, became 12 years. I don't recommend going straight into the ministry after you get saved. But, um, uh, you know, but that, the reality of that is this. Some people would argue with me about my own testimony. Again, I'm the world's leading expert on my own story. You can't refute it. You weren't there. Okay, I was. I prayed a prayer when I was nine years old in a Baptist church in Kansas City, Missouri, that my parents put me on a church bus, and I was still going to hell. There's nowhere in Scripture that says, pray this prayer and you're saved. That's how it was communicated to me. Pray this prayer and you're going to go to heaven. What the Scriptures, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. What the Bible does say is that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth confession is made and with the heart one believes unto salvation. Listen, confessing as Lord is not saying Jesus come in my heart. Confessing as Lord is swearing to follow Him. To make Him Lord of your life. To make Him master of your life. He was not the master of my life. For those of you who heard big pieces of my story, you will realize very quickly Jesus was not the master of my life. I w- if you have a place inside of your theology for someone to claim to be a Christian yet not live like a Christian at all, and by the way, scriptures are pretty clear about how Christians should live in the New Testament. There are things that we should and should not do. If you have place in your theology for someone to totally ignore that, okay, I was saved. There's no place in my theology for that. Because when I was an adult, I know the Lord told me, you are going to hell. When I was laying on an operating room table. And I got that right with him. Well, after I got that right with him, I wasn't in the ministry yet. My pastor's name was Wayne. He asked me, he said, what would hinder your witness? And a lot of you have heard this story. One of the things as I prayed and I sought the Lord about what would hinder my witness as I was working in the army, I was sitting on the tailgate of a five-ton truck, uh, and on the back of that truck was a, was a satellite terminal. I did multi-channel satellite communications, very technical field. I was sitting on the tailgate of that truck, had a dip of Copenhagen in my mouth, smoking a cigarette, Yes, at the same time, I guess I needed to really get the nicotine in me. Um, And uh, the Lord said that with my alcohol consumption, I would never win anybody to Jesus because of that. But I would chase all kinds of people away. There's a ton of people who say that, well, I drink with them so that I can win them in. I just want to encourage you. That's about you wanting to drink. That's not about winning them in. Because my not drinking's never hindered my witness with somebody. But my drinking was hindering my witness with people. And that's the Lord clearly said that. He didn't say you having a drink is sin. He said it's hindering your witness. It's hindering your ministry. It's hindering your impact with people. There were several problems with this, though. I liked to drink. I liked it. And didn't God want me to have pleasure? I had a pretty good stash of booze, and we were kind of poor, so pouring it out or getting rid of it was, like, going to hurt my wallet. It was, you know, that's going to be tough. 
The other problem was Sarah had wanted me to quit drinking for years before Jesus. And I never previously shown any desire. Now, for those of you who aren't married or haven't been married very long, you're not seeing where the problem is. Listen, if your wife wants you to do something for years and then you come home because the Lord told and said, I think I'm going to quit this because the Lord told me, man, it's almost a slight to her, you know? It's like, really? I've been telling you for years, but Jesus just has to tell you one day and you quit? You know? Come on. It doesn't, I'm just telling you, I'm not saying we should avoid it, but these are the problems, right? But I have these issues, but I want to say that God was saying that he wanted to deal with my drinking once and for all. He wanted me to be done with it once and for all. That experience is what I want to share about with you today. I want to share about it with you in the context of Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 25 through 28, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles up to that. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 25 through 28. We're we're going to read the passage together. Then we're going to go through and look at at how that ties in. And some of you are going to be very unsure about how my consumption of alcohol ties into this. Trust me, it does. Just hang with me long enough, you'll see. Okay, just hang with me long enough. Here's what it says. Now, remember, previously it's talking about Christ offered himself up, right? His blood purifying all of these things. We know that he died to purify us, not to purify the building. We've all talked about that. Now, it says here, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. So, it's not just to, to purify the people instead of the building, it doesn't happen to ha- it doesn't have to happen repeatedly for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world but as it is he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and just as it is appointed once for man to die and after that comes the judgment so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Again, I want to encourage you to read the Scriptures with tone in your voice. It makes a huge difference. Especially in that last verse. He's coming back the second time, not to deal with sin. Or, He's he's appearing a second time, not to deal with sin, but to... No, see the difference? Read it with tone in your voice. But to save those who are eagerly waiting. This passage is talking about Christ dying for our sins. This atonement through His blood is is the same as the Old Testament atonement in some ways, but it is different in other ways. It is the same in... These aspects, it is different in these aspects. And we're going to talk about some of those things today, the the similarities and the differences. During the time of the tabernacle and or temple worship, the high priest had to make atonement with imperfect blood. 
I want you to raise your right hand if this is the same as the New Testament. Raise your left hand if it's different. Ready? One, two, three. It's different. <laughs> All right. It's different. Let's try it again. Raise your hand, left hand if it's different. Go. All right. It's different than in the Old Testament time the New Testament sacrifice is. Right? In the Old Testament time, the priest would go in with imperfect blood. The Old Testament blood sacrifice did not remove sin. It merely covered it over until the time of Jesus' coming. I'm not saying that all the people in the Old Testament that died went to hell. God was saving them looking forward to the atoning blood of Christ. And if their faith was in the Messiah, they are in heaven. We know this. We have seen some of these folks. Right? Mount of Transfiguration. There were some Old Testament saints who were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. They didn't really seem like they were in hell, did they? He saved knowing that that Christ's blood was going to be the perfect sacrifice that wiped it all away. This is different than in the New Testament because he had to go in with his imperfect blood and because of this imperfect blood, he had to do it annually. Think about that. It's not a repeated thing. That's one of the things this passage is trying to get at. It doesn't have to happen over and over and over and over and over and over again. It happened once for all. But I don't think we really understand the implications of that. And that's what we're dealing with today is the implications of that. Now, similarly to the New Testament, under the New Covenant, Jesus Jesus also makes atonement with blood. So there's the similarity It's not imperfect blood, but it's blood nonetheless. We read earlier in the passage, as we were preaching through this, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. So we know that blood still plays a part in it. When I first became a a Christian and first came into the church, the, the, the laments that I heard from pastors and worship leaders was how unpopular it was to sing about the blood nowadays. People don't want to hear about it. It's gory. It's this, it's that, it's the other thing. Guys, people don't want to hear about it because it's gory. They don't want to hear about it because the blood of Christ is transformative. And if it's shed on your life, and if you really receive it, something will change. And this is what it says in John that in chapter 3, that the light has come into the world, but the men didn't love the light because they loved the darkness instead. It's kind of like me with my drink, and I liked it. It worked for me. Right? But we have to talk about the blood. The blood has to be shed over us. We have to apply it to our life. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. However, the big difference in the New Testament, the biggest difference, and I touched on it a little bit already, is that Christ's blood, the blood of the new covenant, was perfect. Thus it did not simply cover sin, it removed it and its power entirely. Listen. 
Here's what's wrong with the gospel in America today, and it's probably what's wrong with it in some of your guys' head right now. You think that the blood removed the penalty of sin, so you get to go to heaven. And that is an incomplete gospel. It removes sin's power as well. You're no longer slaves to sin if the blood of Christ is over you. We have began to take the blood of Christ just as fire insurance. The, the, the funny thing about it is, is that if you took the blood of Jesus for fire insurance, you don't have any fire insurance. Because that's not making him Lord. That's just trying to use him. That's not saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I want to serve you. Jesus, I want to follow you. That's not being repentant, saying, Jesus, I don't want to be that kind of person that rebels against you. That's saying, Jesus, I want to keep living my life the way I want to live my life, and I want you to let me into heaven anyways. You need to wrestle with that. A lot of us live that way. We've merely taken his blood as, as a removal of the penalty of sin, and yet we are still under its power. But he's broken the power of sin entirely in our life. Many of you are not experiencing that breaking of that power. I would like to tell you that there's one of two reasons why you've not experienced that breaking of his power. And you have to figure out for yourself personally which one of the two reasons. Number one, you're not really under his blood. Or number two, you've not appropriated the promise. Now, appropriating the promise is not naming it and claiming it. The scriptures tell us what we have to do to have the promise. There are things we have to do. I am not saying anybody at OCCA is saying this, but I'm saying I am tired of hearing from the church in general that Christianity is not about doing things. I posted a scripture on my Facebook this week that talks about the way is narrow and few there are that find it. And most of you are like, yeah, that's Jesus. But I left out a word that everybody always leaves out, but the scriptures don't leave it out. It says the way is narrow and hard. Following Jesus is a whole lot like work. We don't work our way to Him, but because we're in the relationship with Him, with, our, with His blood on our lives, work comes out of that. Following is active. I mean, we don't even like to use the word Christian anymore. We say it's because it doesn't make sense to lost people. Let me tell you why we don't like the word to use, to use the word Christian. Because we don't like what it means. It literally means slave of Christ. It does not mean little Christ. It does not mean Christ follower. It Christianos is of Latin. The Christos means the anointed one. The Ianos is of Latin origin in the Greek. They borrow the Ianos from the Latin. And it literally carries the connotation of being owned by the one whose name precedes it. It means slave of Christ. We don't like to be called Christians because we don't like to be called slaves of Christ. 
But the scripture teaches us all throughout the New Testament. You're going to be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. It uses over and over and over again in, in, the, in the Bible. It used to use the word bondservant in translations. A lot of translations now say servant. The Greek word is doulos. Literally means slave. I, Paul, a doulos of Christ. Anyway. We have to appropriate the power. And I fear that we're not appropriating the power because we haven't appropriated the promise through repentance or that we're not in the kingdom at all. But let me go on to explain a little bit for you to understand. I want to explain the power of Christ's perfect sacrifice in my life in, in light of my drinking. And, and I have no idea what just happened there. I don't know why that did that. So I don't know why all those are... Okay, good. <clears throat> they all just popped up all of a sudden. Went a little too far. I want to explain what it did for me. When I got saved and my pastor asked me, he did not say, do you drink, do you smoke, do you do this? He said, what would hinder your witness? That's what he asked me. What would hinder your witness? When I got saved and Christ told me that drinking would hinder my witness and he asked me to quit drinking and he said, this is going to stand between you and other people. Stop doing this. Here's what happened. I was free from worrying about my drinking now. In, when I was in the army, this all happened while I was in the army, and I, we would have a thing called NCOPD, which is Non-Commissioned Officer Professional Development. That would happen every Thursday uh, afternoon. In the morning, we would have what was called Sergeant's Time, where we would do training with our troops, and you know we wouldn't be working on vehicles and all that kind of stuff. We would do specific skill training with our troops. And then Thursday afternoon, we would go to NCOPD, and the officers would go to OPD. And, and this was professional development where we train. We would go do this NCOPD, and then afterwards, a lot of times we would do this at the bowling alley. We could go pretty much anywhere. You know, you had to set it all up and get approval. But we'd go at the bowling alley, and we'd sit in the cafe inside the bowling alley. And then after we got done with NCOPD, and everybody uh, we was done, and we were done with our training, we would sit there and drink a couple of pitchers of beer together. Now, I had to sit at that table and worry about whether or not I had had too much to drive home. Because if you're a non-commissioned officer or above in the military and you get a DUI, you're done, son. It's over. At least it was in the Army. I don't know. Jack may tell you it's different in the Air Force. But in the Army, you're an NCO or an officer and you get a DUI, it's over. You just wrote your ticket out of the military. doesn't matter how long you were in for. You are done, and it is not a good thing. The legal drinking limit on post was lower. And I had to say, did I have too much? Because even if I drive home and I'm not swerving or anything, even if I'm driving just fine, even if I feel unencumbered by this, if I feel like I'm, I'm okay... It doesn't mean that there's not going to be a random stop for a DUI check on the way home. All of a sudden, when I quit drinking and I go to NCOPD, I never had to think about whether or not I was good to drive. 
This thing no longer dominated me. It no longer had power over me. It no longer made me sit there and think, hmm, how much have I had? There were no longer any consequences for drinking for me. I no longer had to worry about it. Now, before I quit, I had to, as a Christian, I had to consider who would I drink around. Because we know that the scriptures say that we are to put our, put aside our own liberties for the sake of other people. For people who say that that's not true, read your Bible. It is true. It says you put it away for the sake of their conscience that you cannot make your brother stumble and not call it sin in your own life. So I would have to ask myself questions like, can I drink around this person? Can I drink around this person? Is it going to cause them to stumble? What about the people I'm drinking around that know that I'm a believer? That I don't know their story. I don't know where they're at. I don't know the fact that this other guy that I'm at NCOPD with uh, maybe uh, is having a severe uh, problem with alcoholism and him being with us while we're drinking is tempting him to do something and this is going to be what destroys his marriage. Let me give you a real-world example out of our former president, Gary Benedict's life. Gary Benedict was the former president of the Alliance before John Stumbo. His daughter and son-in-law were are members of an Alliance church. At the church in which they're part of, they went out to dinner with some folks. At that dinner, folks at the dinner began to order a glass of wine or a beer or whatever. They weren't overindulging. They were staying within Christian liberty. They weren't getting drunk. All of those things. Sitting at that table is a couple who the man had been an alcoholic kind of cause him to lose everything level alcoholic. He had been sober for a number of years. He leaned over to his wife and said, you know, I think I can drink again. I think it would probably be fine. These guys are Christians. These guys love the Lord. They're able to do it. They're not falling down. They have this kind of little conversation. They end up doing it. A number of years later, this fam, this, this man and wife are divorced and life has fallen apart on them and both of them trace it back to that beer at that table when life started falling apart. Those other Christians that were at that table that did not know his story, that did not know his life, that did not know what was going on, enabled that to get a hold of that guy again. They thought they were fine. He thought he was fine. But that started the cycle of his alcoholism again that ended up destroying their marriage. I never have to worry about this. I don't have to worry about if my if my imbibing is going to make somebody else fall. I haven't had to deal with that question for well over a decade. I certainly never have to deal with the question of whether or not I've crossed the line into drunk. Now, this is a funny line, drunk. Where is it? I would say our secular government says that it's way before the rest of you might say that it is. It is not a feeling of impairment. It is when you are impaired, whether you think you are or not. This is how tons and tons of people get DUIs and are angry about the DUI they get because they're over the limit. They're like, I wasn't drunk. Mm. Our non-Christian secular government says you were. (laughs) 
scientifically proving that you are, whether you like to believe it or not. I don't have to worry about this. I do not have to worry about whether or not I cross the line into drunk or not. Ever. Basically, I don't. I no longer have to worry about feeling condemned. I don't know why all that came up. So just don't read it. Just let me just. I no longer had to worry about feeling condemned by myself or others. Christ's blood had set me free. Let's look at verse 26b. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Listen. I'm not saying whether or not drinking is a sin for you, but I'm saying drinking is definitely a sin for me. And he put it away in my life by his blood. He put it away. I no longer had to worry about what others were thinking. I no longer had to condemn myself. I no longer had to struggle with, have I crossed the line? Have I not crossed the line? Is this wise or is this unwise? It's just something that I said, you know what, the whole thing, I'm just going to put it away. And he did that with his blood. He empowered me to do that. This didn't mean I didn't care what other people thought. I deeply care. But now I don't have to consider whether or not people are being critical of me if I'm drinking. You can't be critical about something I'm not doing. I put my own personal preference aside. I liked to drink. But I put my own personal preference aside in order to strengthen my relationship with others. Allow me to explain it this way. I I never previously had a desire to quit drinking because I liked it. But when Christ's blood was applied to my life, things changed suddenly. Suddenly I found I cared how my drinking affected other people. I cared what my neighbors thought about me. My neighbors, I didn't know it. My neighbors, they couldn't stand me because I drank. I know, I know. They're bad. Grow up. If you're a mature Christian, grow up. You're the one that's supposed to put it to the side for them, not the other way around. Don't blame them sacrifice for them. My neighbors didn't like me because I drank. They wouldn't hear anything that I had to say. This was I didn't know this until after I quit drinking. It was hindering my witness. But when they saw the transformation in my life, my neighbors started coming to church. Not because I kept drinking, but because I quit. Hmm. There's an interesting concept. I had a young man at Crossroads. His name was Brandon. I won't give you his last name. Brandon told me, oh, I drink with him because I want to be able to connect with him and, and, and witness to him and da-da-da-da-da. And I said, Brandon, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Brandon said, no, no, I'm trying to become all things to all people that I might win some to Christ. I said, Brandon, I promise you, those guys that are not Christians are trying to drag you down. No, they're my friends. No, Brandon, they're trying to drag you down. About a year and a half later, Brandon came to me and said, I was a fool. They finally all admitted that their whole goal was to try to get me drunk and prove that Jesus hadn't done anything in my life. They were trying to drag me down. 
I said, I told you. This is back when I was rougher and not as gentle as I am now. Some of you are like, whoa. (laughs) I started caring about what my wife and kids thought about me. If you have a wife or a husband that doesn't drink, I bet you they want you to quit drinking, whether they'll tell you or not. Now, some of you have wives and husbands that drink with you, and such is life. And again, this isn't about drinking. I'm using my drinking as an illustration. But now all of a sudden, my wife didn't want that as involved in our life, and and so now all of a sudden I cared what she wanted. I, I cared that my drinking could cause other people to be pushed away from him rather than being drawn to him. And it does. It pushes people away. I cared that my drinking, or excuse me, I cared that the money that I was spending on drinking could be used for better things. Things like, I don't know, my tithe, missions, evangelism, children's ministry, etc. I hear all the time from people who don't tithe, oh, I can't afford it. I mean, I could go through their lives and show like 20 or 30 things they could probably quit and have the money. Things that aren't needed. How much money they're spending on different things. All of a sudden, I cared. I cared about what I was doing with, with the things that God had entrusted me with. See, the second point that you weren't supposed to read said, Christ's blood freed me to love Him more via loving my neighbors better. Now, I put the neighbors in quotes because the neighbors are my wife, my kids, the men and the women that I worked with. I had people follow me home from work. I'd get home and I'd turn around and look and somebody would be standing there behind me and I'm like, what are you doing here? They're like, I want to talk to you about what? You're radically different. What happened? I want to know. One of those guys' name is Nate Hutchins. He is a chaplain in the reserves at this point. God radically changed his life, not because I continued in my old life, but because Christ's power, his blood, transformed my life. It did it just more than with the drinking. You think I'm a jerk now? You should have seen me before Jesus. Like, I took pleasure in making you feel this tall. If I, I would dominate you intellectually if I could and make you feel about that tall. That way you knew who was tougher. You may be able to whoop me in a fight, but I will whoop you in the mental battle. You know? This radical transformation took place in my life. I found that I had access to power to quit drinking, to quit running people into the ground, to quit all of these things. People who say that you just come to Jesus Christ, He doesn't want you to quit anything, are not telling you the truth. I guarantee you, Jesus wants you to quit something. Lots of somethings. That's what repentance is. We have taken it too far, a truth. The truth is, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't get to tell you specifically what Jesus is telling you to quit. That's why I started my illustration by saying you're going to want to use it one way or the other. You're going to block it out. Listen, I believe that eventually every one of us, if we're born again, sold out believers, and we live long enough, Christ will tell you to stop drinking. Believe that wholeheartedly. I trust in that enough 
I don't feel like I have to beat you up with it. I'll let him do it. It's his job anyways. Okay? But the point that I'm trying to make is I had the power when he said to change. He didn't just set me free from the penalty of sin. He's not coming back the second time. And it says there in verse 28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting. He's dealt with my sin already. He's dealt with the consequence and He's dealt with the power. I can walk free. Here's how the power to quit drinking was for me. I wasn't the guy who got up every day and had to have a drink. But if you offered me a beer, I never turned it down. Now it was easy to say no. Some people have suggested, I wish he wasn't a pastor. I'd love to go drink a beer with him. Sorry. I quit drinking before I was a pastor. Has nothing to do with me being a preacher. I wouldn't drink with you. I won't condemn you if you do. I promise you, if you sit down to dinner with me and you order a beer, I won't condemn you. I won't beat you up. I won't belittle you. But I won't partake with you, even if I wasn't a believer. I mean, even if I wasn't a pastor. It was easy to say no. I never, I never said no. Now it's easy to say no. It didn't bother me to go home. I had this problem about all my alcohol. But when I said, Lord, I'll follow you. This is what you're telling me to hinder my witness. Fine. I will go home and get rid of it all. It didn't bother me to go home and throw it all out. I don't remember if Sarah suggested or somebody suggested, why are you throwing it out? Why don't you give it away? And the answer was, if the Lord doesn't want me to have it, why would he want me to give it to somebody else? And we poured it all out. I knew it was Jesus who personally wanted me to do it. And I said, Lord, if you want me to do it, you'll provide the power. See, that's the thing about sin. That's the thing about why I can't be the Holy Spirit in your life. That's why I can't convict you of anything. But when God convicts you, it works. Some people want to say stuff like, you can't be gay and be Christian. I'm sorry to say, I believe that somebody can be a homosexual and get saved. Will they stay gay for all of their life if they live 50 years? No, I think it's just like drinking. They're going to eventually quit. But Jesus is going to be the one who convicts them and gives them the power to quit. Gives them the power to no longer act on those homoerotic feelings. Can somebody be a glutton and and be saved? Yes. Unfortunately, I am one. And I'm not not making a joke. And the Lord is, is giving me more power here recently to start caring about that. I'm never going to be Keith. You know, thin and trim and running. I hate running. Man, I was, I was really thin in the army and I still despised running. So I'm never going to be that guy. But I was better, you know, physically then. And he's giving me power to beat this in his timing, with his strength. 
See, Jesus' sacrifice, point three, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross gave me the power to live free from something that was entangling me. That's what it says there in verse 27 and verse 28, that He's giving you power to be free. He's not coming to deal with the sin, to put it away in the sense of to remove the penalty and all of that stuff and remove the power. He's already done that. When He comes the second time, it's to usher me into the presence of God Himself. It's to usher me before the throne of God where I will probably like mercy me have no clue what I'm going to do. I can only imagine. Will I dance? Will I fall down? Will I cry? Will I sing? I don't know. I don't know. But He's already given me the power to beat sin. He's already given me the power to live a life that is holy and pleasing and set apart for His good works. He's already given me the power to sit back and ask questions about wisdom or unwisdom. I know, wise or unwise, right? making up words in the pulpit i do that a lot i just do them with confidence so you don't know it most of the time <laughs> always somebody will come up to me when i do it and go um pretty sure you made that word up like one person i'm like yeah but the rest of them were convinced <laughs> so this wise or unwise thing was something that happened very rapidly in my ministry Jesus doesn't ask mature Christians to figure out whether stuff is sin or righteousness. He says in Ephesians chapter 5 to act wise because the days are short and evil. A friend of John's is the one who I first heard preach on that passage. His name is Pastor Andy. He preached on that in Argentina. I never remember sermons. Ever. Not even my own. I can remember like two. One of them was the sermon Andy Bear preached on Ephesians chapter 5 about mature Christians don't ask whether it's sin or righteousness. They ask whether it's wise or unwise. And if it's unwise, they just they stay away from it. And Christ provides the power. See, that's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what His sacrifice did. It didn't just set us free from the penalty. He bore our sins, literally bore them on the cross and their power. He breaks their daily power. And Christians are not accessing these two things. They either feel condemned and ashamed when they stumble and fall. Like they have to get saved again. Or, and what I'm afraid happens more often than the other way, they just think they can live whatever way they want to and they call it Christian liberty. I believe that I totally have Christian liberty to say a certain word. Don't say it. My technical word for, huh, but it bothers another person in our church. And so I refrain for their conscience. And no, I am not giving any of you permission to come and nitpick my words. My point is that we, this is broken in our life. I care about how my actions affect others. I care about how my actions glorify or don't glorify God. P. 
people are not, it's one of two things that's happening. Either we're ashamed and we feel condemned every time we stumble and fall and we feel like we've got to get saved. You know, I've got to go back and get right with God because he's going to hate me. Or we just don't care. And I'm afraid more of us in Christianity, in our country, and maybe even some of us in this room, just don't care. We just think it's all good. They never consider that their daily actions affect other people or how they affect themselves. They think, ah, Jesus' blood saved me so I can live however I want. Well, there's homework. And then we're going to have a little altar time. The homework deals with being free from condemnation as well as being free and, and shame as well as having power to live holy. Monday is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Tuesday is 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. Wednesday is Romans 13, 8 through 14. Thursday is Romans 8, 1 through 11. Friday, Galatians 5, 16 through 26. And Saturday, Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Now, I want you to apply this message in one, in, in, in one of two ways today, or if the Lord tells you another way, fine. Okay? You're going you're gonna to apply this message in prayer with the elders or your small group leader. If your small group leader is here and the elders, I want you guys to go ahead Make your way forward. No wives this time. Just the elders and the small group leaders. And if you're a woman's small group leader, that's fine. You come forward too. And if the Lord is dealing with you, you go ahead and make, you can make your move, guys. Small group leaders and elders, come forward. Here's the two applications. I want you to go to your small group leader if you're part of a small group. And if you're not, then go to an elder. Okay? Now, here's the applications. Number one. Breaking the cycle of feeling condemned as a Christian. I've fallen down. I've fallen down. And I need... I need, And I feel ashamed. I feel condemned every time that I do. It's not how Jesus wants you to live. If that's you, we want you to come up to your small group leader, first choice, or an elder if there's no small group leader available. Second application. I'm that person that just doesn't care. I live any way that I want to. You're going to know if you're that person if you, if you are justifying actions under the guise of Christian liberty. Whatever those actions are. Listen. Homosexuals justify homosexuality under the guise of Christian liberty. They've taken it further than you have, certainly. But they say, God gives me the liberty to be this way. Okay? Those are the two things. Now, if you're a band member, if you'll come up and start to play here in just a second, and we're going to pray while you're coming. Father, I ask you to speak to people's hearts, to their minds, to their spirits. Lord, that today this altar would actually be full of people who rush forward for prayer to be free from condemnation, the power of condemnation and shame over their sin. 
Lord, I also pray that it would be full of people who come forward and say, I'm the person who lives any way that I want to. Some of these things, some things popped into my mind today while pastor was preaching and, and I don't really think about those things ever, but I feel like the Lord wants me to care about them. Lord, work in hearts, work in minds that people would come forward and be prayed over. It's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said.